Good morning. It is my prayer today that you have come to worship. And my prayer for you is also that you will give me a ready mind and will follow the Word of God as it comes forth from the Scriptures this day. Would you turn to the 139th Psalm? I ask you to keep your Bibles open throughout the remainder of the exposition this morning as we'll be staying with the text primarily itself. This will be the first in a series of extended messages on this psalm involving its exposition, and the overall title of this series is The All-Searching God. And the first message title will simply be an introduction to the psalm in its entirety. Due to the fact that I'm going to cover all 24 verses today, and that you want to get out by 12 o'clock or so, why I'm not going to be reading the text as I normally do in advance. But I will be reading the sections that I'm going to be addressing as we go through the passage this morning. Keep your Bibles open there. This psalm was penned by David and was sent to the chief musician, in Israel, to have the words put to music. You'll find in most of your Bibles a heading over to that effect. And it was perhaps to be used in the public worship of God. Many of the Jewish writers believe that this is the best of all of David's psalms, even surpassing the 23rd Psalm. It is believed to have been written at a time when David's reputation as God's king was being slandered by his political opponents. In opposing them as enemies of God, David was willing to have the sincerity of his own motives as well as his actions searched by God to see if there were any wicked ways in him. And this I make the note in passing, in doing battle with adversaries and opposing viewpoints and ideologies, it is comforting to be able to rejoice in the testimony of a good conscience before God who can search the heart. That when we say something against someone or some principle, we must make sure that we are aware that God is searching the heart. And our heart. This psalm shows us that before we can know our own hearts, we must first know God's character. And I hope that stays with you. This psalm presents to us theology at its very best. What do we mean by theology? Theology is the study of God. And Psalm 139 gives us theology that is both pure and practical. A theology that is all abstract can be cold, barren, and of little practical use. Some refer to this as a head or a theoretical theology. In contrast, a theology that is all experimental may be warm, comforting, and practical, but lacks substance and will not hold up in times of trial. This is sometimes called experimental, 
or heart theology. I make a note here, I do not endorse the idea that the Bible makes a distinction between the head and the heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. But a lot of preachers really go to extend in making that. But I use it for practical purposes today. That is, that the theology that is rooted in our intellect alone can sometimes be very dry and barren. And on the other hand, the theology that is rooted in our affections can sometimes not have any substance to it. Whenever the intellect and the affections are separated, you will produce a warped religious character. This psalm presents God to us, not in terms of theological abstractions, but in terms of personal religious experience. It is a working or what we call applied theology. In this psalm, we have the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God all set forth. But these essential attributes of God are set forth in a wonderful, personal manner, so as to impact the psalmist and ourselves as his readers. Alexander McLaren, one of the better teachers from the 19th century, describes David's theology in this psalm as, quote, not mere omniscience, but a knowledge of which knows him altogether. Not mere omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape, speaking of the psalmist. Not mere creative power, but a power that has shaped him. And it fills and thrills the psalmist's soul, end of quote. If your theology doesn't shape you, it's not a proper theology. If your theology doesn't move you, it's not a proper theology. It's barren. Now, we'll give you now an outline and follow it, show you in, in weeks ahead what lies ahead. First, in verses 1 through 6, David reveals the omniscience of God. Follow as I read the text. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, art acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The omniscience of God. This is the theme of the first six verses of this great psalm. This is the term, that is, the omniscience of God, is a term used to express the idea that God is all-knowing. That is, He sees and knows everything. This knowledge is a knowledge of perfection. He knows all things and He knows them in an exhaustive manner. We as humans also know things, but only in part, and our knowledge is imperfect. 
Arthur Pink, a noted Bible teacher of the past century, now deceased, wrote this. God knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual. All events, all creatures of the past, the present, the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. End of quote. That's the God with whom we have to deal. A.W. Tozer, another teacher of the previous generation or century, now deceased, words it like this. God has never learned from anyone. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, the Maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortly all manner, all matter, and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all laws and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, Every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, hell. I stopped to get my breath. This is the God that I'm talking about today that David is presenting to us. I pick up now with Tozer's remaining quote. Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing. But all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out for their own good, does He seek information or ask questions. End of quote. The God with whom we have to do has a perfect knowledge of us at all times. He is the all-searching God. Do you believe that? Let's look at verses 7 through 12, where David moves to the omnipresence of God. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to them. 
What do we mean by the omnipresence of God? This is the term that is used to describe the fact that God is present with his whole being throughout every point of space and fills the universe in all of its parts. That's profound, but that's the profound God we're dealing with. This word present means, quote, here, close to, next to. End of the dictionary understanding. I repeat again, the word omnipresent means here, close to, next to. The present prefix, rather, omni, gives it universal expression. Thus, God is everywhere here, close to everything, next to everyone. The Scriptures clearly teach such. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 states, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? There is nowhere in the entire universe, on land or sea or in heaven or in hell, where one can flee from the presence of God. Those of you that are here Wednesday night, we made a comment how that some, we were trying to explain how some get people into the thousand year reign after the second coming of Christ in, in mortal bodies. And some Bible teachers see the problem and they maintain that at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, some of the wicked are going to hide in caves and Jesus is not going to be able to find them and they'll go into the millennium. This text right here refutes that. I wish I'd have had it Wednesday night. Let me read it again. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places, caves, that I shall not see him? Nobody's going to escape when Jesus comes back. We should also note that the omnipresence of God is not simply a part of God, which is in one place, and a part of God, which is in another place. It is God himself who is present wherever David may go. While God is present at every part of space, or at every point in space, it is also true that God cannot be contained by any space, no matter how large that space is. Solomon, in his prayer to God, states in 1 Kings 8:27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven, heaven of heavens, cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. God cannot be contained by the largest space imaginable. In Acts 7, verse 47, Stephen set forth this truth to the Jewish leaders. Quote, Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all of these things? While the knowledge of God is everywhere present with His whole being, 
ought to encourage us to worship and to pray to God the truth that no one place can be said to contain God should discourage us, now listen, from thinking there is some special place of worship where people can gain a special access to God. Not in a church, any more than out in a field. Not at an altar, any more than sitting in a pew. Not in a mass, any more than eating a luncheon. There's not some special place where God is found at. He is everywhere. So we do not have to migrate to one place and say, that's where God is at. That ought to have something to say with our religious rituals. No, God is not contained in one place. This should especially be understood in the new covenant age of the gospel, which we are presently living Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23 and 24, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a what? A spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is here affirming that true worship acknowledges the omnipresence of God. And thus, we have thus seen that two ideas then of God must be discarded that are prevalent today. Number one, the erroneous idea that a part of God is in one place and another part of God is in another place. And secondly, we must discard the erroneous idea that God can be contained in any place or space. Now we must discard a third idea of God that is also erroneous, namely, that God exists in a bigger space than that of the universe as we know it. Wayne Grudem, a current Bible teacher, cautions against that idea. I quote from his systematic theology. We should guard against thinking that God extends infinity far in all directions so that he himself exists in a sort of an infinite, unending space. Nor should we think that God is somehow a bigger space or bigger area surrounding the space of the universe as we know it. All of these ideas continue to think of God's beings in spatial terms as if he were an extremely large being. Instead, we should try to avoid thinking of God in terms of size. God is a being who exists without size and dimensions in space. Listen, in fact, before God created the universe, there was no matter or material, and there was no space either. Yet God existed. Where was God? 
He was not in a place that we would call a where. For there was no where or space. But God still was. This fact makes us realize that God relates to space in a far different way than we do or any other created thing does. He exists as a kind of being that is far different and far greater than we can imagine. End of quote. This is the God that searches us. The fourth error relating to the omnipresence of God is in thinking that God himself is equivalent to any part of the creation or to all of it. This is the air of pantheism. The pantheist believes that everything is God, that God is everything that exists. The biblical view is that God is present everywhere in His creation, but He is, listen, distinct from His creation. How can this be? The best analogy I can come up with is that of a sponge dipped in water, though it's not a perfect analogy. There is water everywhere in the sponge, though the water is distinct from the sponge. Get it? God is everywhere in the creation, and yet He is distinct from the creation. The lesson to be learned from the omnipresence of God is that the immensity of God is such that the creature cannot escape his sight and power. The all-searching God. I love a God like that. I can worship a God like that. Let's look in verses 13 through 18, where here we have the omnipotence of God set forth. For thou hast possessed me... My reins, rather, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I'll praise thee. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. And that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. An expression there to the womb. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? God forming an infant in the womb. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more than in number than the sand. When I wake, I'm still with thee. What do we mean by the omnipotence of God in all that He has created and all of His works? This is a term used to describe the fact that God is able to do all in His will to do. Hmm? Is that all right with you? As I have said over the years, it better be because it ain't going to make any difference. God is able to do all that He wills to do. The word potence comes from a Latin word, means powerful. Likewise, omni, the prefix, means all, thus giving us 
all-powerful. John was given many revelations of the nature of God in the book of Revelation. Two such visions describing the omnipotence of God are recorded in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 6 and 15. Don't turn there. Stay there in Psalm 139, and I'll quote them for us, okay? Two descriptions of the omnipotence of God. John says, And I heard it, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's the only kind of God there is, one that's almighty. David also states in Psalm 62 in verse 1, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. For God to be able to reign sovereignly, He must be able to perform His purposes. Psalm 115, verse 3, gives what I think is the best definition of God's omnipotence to be found in the Bible. That's quite a summary, but that's what I've come to. I can't find a verse any better than this. Let me quote it. Psalm 115, verse 1. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. That's what it means to be omnipotent. I can't do whatever I please because my wife won't let me. And you can't do whatever you please because you don't have all the money in the world. There are limitations to all of us because we are finite. But there is one being who is able to do whatever he pleases for he is all-powerful. And this is what David is stating and praising this God when he is in the midst of political upheaval and his opponents would seek to remove him from being king. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, With God nothing shall be impossible. Luke 1.37 And Jesus said, With God all things are possible. Matthew 19.26 Two things about the infinite power of God must be taken into consideration. Number one, since God's power is infinite, God is therefore not limited to doing only what He does. Hmm? I state it again. Since God's power is infinite, His power is not limited or exhausted to doing only what He does. He created a world, didn't He? He could have created 10,000 worlds. Hmm? But He didn't. In fact, God is able to do more than He actually does. John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. He's able. 
In Exodus 32.10, God could have destroyed Israel and raised up a great nation from Moses, but He did not do so. So God has infinite power to do far more than what He actually does. There's a second thing to consider about this infinite power of God, though. The other side of the coin. Just because God's power is infinite does not mean that God can do anything. You say, Pastor, it sounds like you just contradicted yourself. If that did come to your mind, I'm glad it came to your mind, because it should have. But this is the other side of the coin. There are some things which God cannot do. He cannot do anything that would deny or contradict His own character. For example, Titus 1-2 says, quote, God cannot lie. End of quote. If He lied, that would be a reflection upon His character. Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. 2 Timothy 2.13 says of Christ, He cannot deny Himself. See all these cannots? James 1.13 affirms, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. There are some things which God cannot do although there are many things that he does not do that he could do. God could not, Brother David, destroy himself so as to cease to exist. Neither could he perform a contradiction which skeptics raise such as creating a rock so big he could not lift it. Thus, God cannot lie, He cannot sin, He cannot deny Himself, and He cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot cease to exist or act in any way inconsistent with any of His attributes. His attributes are revealed to us and they reveal His character and He must act according to His moral character, the being that He has revealed Himself to be. In summary, the omnipotence of God does not mean He can do anything, but that He can do anything and everything His will is pleased to do. Look now at verses 19 through 24 as here we're going to see two responses of men to this all-searching God. Follow the reading of the text. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. You see, this is David's opponents here, that David is God's king. Is that right? A man after God's own heart, God has put him on the throne. So he's God's man. There are opponents that are seeking to dethrone him. They're the wicked. So David said, Surely you'll slay the wicked. O God, depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee, 
wickedly. And thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. My, how that troubles the modern liberal. How in the world can you hate? And yet look at the next text. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Hmm? (laughs) See that? If it's wrong at all times to hate, then David says, search my heart and show me I'm wrong. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. There is a consistency with asking God to search the sincerity of the heart and have a perfect hatred toward his enemies. Now, what are these two responses to men of this all-searching God? When the the God of the Bible is made known to men, two responses are predictable. And I know this is true having preached the gospel now for almost 48 years. I know every time I preach, these two responses are going to take place. In verses 19 through 22... Look at those verses. The, God, the ungodly will suppress and deny the truth of God and give glory to the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. The result is those who are ungodly, not God-centered, will become man-centered and humanistic in their worldview of thinking. They don't want a knowledge of an all-searching God. They've got to suppress that. And thus they suppress or hold down the true character of God. Romans 1.18 says, Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And the word hold there means suppress. All men know there's a God. And they know that He is a supreme being who have created a finite universe. But they don't want that knowledge. In Romans 1.20, they deny the omnipotence of God, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And they attribute the origin and operation of the universe to the laws, listen, of Mother Nature, rather than the power and providence of Father God. I just get bored stiff with weathermen talking about Mother Nature. What is going on right now on the East Coast is not something independent of the Father God who has created all things, that somehow He's lost control of what He's created. And this dear something known as Mother Nature is now what is ruling things. I get sick of that. Why am I sick of it? Because it contradicts the God of the Bible who is the all-searching God and the God who reveals Himself as the Creator of all things. And the ungodly must suppress that and replace the finite creation in its place. 
This causes the ungodly to plunge deeper into ungodly thoughts and deeds. Read Romans 1, 26-32 on your own, how they suppressed that. And God gave them over to a reprobate mind to think however they want to think. Oh, my hearers today, be careful what you think about God. Hmm? You reject the revelation of this all-searching God, and He may give you over to your deceived thoughts and leave you there. And He would not in any way harm His attributes in doing so. The story is told of one of the tribal chiefs of the American Indians, which was exposed to Christianity by the founding missionaries from England. After teaching this tribal chief for a lengthy period of time, the missionary asked the reason why the chief had not converted to Christianity. The chief replied, I do not like your God. The missionary asked why. The chief replied, he's always watching me. Even the pagan native has an understanding of God and does not like the idea that an all-wise, all-powerful, everywhere existing God is watching him day and night. There's another predicted response, though, to this understanding of David here, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's the other response. The godly, Brother Asa, will embrace the truth of God. Get the difference? And glorify the Creator who's blessed forever. The ungodly suppress it. The godly will embrace it. And this results in the godly, in them becoming God-centered and theistic in their worldview of thinking. They're ready to bow down and worship a God who's worthy of worship. Mother Nature is not a God who's worthy of worship. It's the one supreme, all-wise being who is alone worthy of worship. And God is jealous. He will not share His glory with another, the Scripture declares. And when one is God-centered and theistic in their worldview of thinking, this caused them first, in verse 23, to possess a desire to lead a holy life. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me. Or know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. A desire to be holy. Hmm? There's a song, O to be like thee. O to be like thee. Is that the burning passion of your heart? Or are you just content to be the way you are? Hmm? 
Oh, to be like God, like my Lord Jesus Christ, who never had to ask forgiveness for anything. (laughs) What will it be like in the eternal state of affairs when God perfects us and we never have to pray for forgiveness of sin again? Never get ourselves in a mess because of our sinning. A desire to live a holy life. And the second thing that the godly want is in verse 24, a desire to be led in the ways of God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I hope I've given you a little hunger for what lies ahead as we're going to come back and break these verses down in their individual divisions in the weeks to come. Summarizing what we have presented today, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a leading pastor here in America and died a few years ago, summarizes the psalm in this manner. Although Psalm 139 deals with some of the highest and most important of all theological concepts, the omniscience, the omnipresence, and omnipotence of God, It nevertheless has two practical aims that become clear at its close. First, the writer wants to separate himself from all who deliberately practice evil. And second, he wants God to search him thoroughly, purge him of anything that might be offensive to God so that he might walk in the way everlasting. This is practical theology. Boyce goes on to say, It is hard to think of any more practical reasons for theology than those. Now the response to what you have just heard this morning will be one of two things. If you are unconverted, You've never been brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ and His way of justification by grace through faith alone. This knowledge of God will seem intrusive and frightening, and you will sense right now in your bosom that your safety is threatened, and you will seek to flee from this knowledge On the other hand, if you are saved today, you know the Lord in the free pardon of sin, you will find this knowledge enlightening and comforting and will run to this God as a refuge for safety. Hmm? Are you running to this all-searching God or are you running away from Him? One of two responses to all of my hearers today. I pray God give you a heart to come to Him and that you will come by the drawing of the Holy Spirit willingly and happy. That this God who knows all about your sinning has provided a Savior to take care of all of the various sins that men commit. Huh? Come to Jesus Christ in the free pardon of sin. This God who is so great 
condescended to become a man and lived and walked in a body like you and I possess. Was tested in all points like as we, yet without sin. And this all-powerful God invites sinners to come to Him. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. But, Pastor, how can I come to a God who has just shown me? He's opened up the inside of me and shown me that what I thought was good about me is nothing more than filthy rags. I don't, how could He, how can I approach a holy God like this? Through Jesus Christ, the Holy One who lived a sinless life on your behalf, who died a substitutionary death on your behalf, who was raised from the dead as God signifying His approval that this is the way I receive sinners. It's not on the basis of your good deeds, but upon the good deeds of My Son done in your place. Come. Come to Me. I'll give you rest. All that the Father giveth me shall what? Shall come. And him that cometh I will in no wise cast out. Hmm? Do you see the many attributes of God all working here? The justice of God being upheld. The holiness of God being upheld. And yet the grace and mercy of God being introduced into the whole scene. Oh, come and bow before this all-searching God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for another day in which we can approach You through the teachings of Your Word, through our Mediator, Your Son. I thank You for giving me a heart that loves You and no longer seeks to flee from You, or to try to find fault with you or the Word or your Son. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free, unconditional, all conditioned upon what Jesus has done for me. I stand amazed in your presence wondering how you could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is your love to me. Send us to our homes today with this amazement. May it never cease to amaze us that you, the all-searching God, has found us out and instead of condemning us, has brought you to yourself. In Christ's name we express our thanks and praise. Amen.